Hello and welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two 30-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular niche RPGs. It's like a book club with suspended walkways that have serious structural integrity issues. This is season one, and we're talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. My name is Tyler. And I'm Nate. We invite you to join us on this adventure by playing Xenoblade alongside these episodes where we will explore Xenoblade chapter by chapter. Last episode, we did the first half of chapter 11. This time, we're going to do the second half of chapter 11 where we arrive at Galahad Fortress. Good evening, Nate. Good evening, Tyler. How's it going with the uh, family life? Are you settling in yeah yeah i'm settling in we spent 19 days about 100 miles away from home uh because uh, our baby was in the NICU and uh she was discharged uh, two tuesdays ago and now we are figuring out what home life will be like here she's in the room here cooing in the bassinet across the way keeping an eye on her uh tonight but it's been it's been good i mean the nights can be long and you know feedings can be chaotic but it's it's a really really great experience I love our little peanut and um, she's curious and unpredictable and excitable and my heart just melts. It's It's been a really, really good experience. Well, I'm glad you're uh, able to finally be home, Tyler, and enjoy some, I, I'm not sure if it's peaceful or quiet by any means, but uh, enjoy the comforts of home and settling in and getting into that routine. Yeah, that's me right now. 100%. Thanks for your patience, everybody, while we get the next episodes out here. Um, when you have a baby, you have to spend some time sorting all that out um, for yourself. And so we were not uh, publishing episodes for those weeks in which we were away. Um, but uh, ready to get back into the groove here and continue with our adventure through Xenoblade Chronicles. Nate, do you have any addendums and corrections and things like that for the previous episode? I don't. Um, okay, I have one. Okay, I, I, I will say that there were some things that I just kind of thought, hmm, that'd be good to talk about in the next episode. Hmm. So go ahead. Right, so I mentioned that there was a place in Sword Valley called Monado Wound, and I kind of wondered to myself, why is it called a wound? We wouldn't call a scratch on a blade a wound, and I think that's still true, but stumbled upon some further research on the Monado Wound, and the Monado Wound wasn't produced by the Monado as it was wielded by Bionis. It was the Monado as it was wielded by Dunbin one year ago at the Battle of Sword Valley. Mm, gotcha. That makes sense. That Yeah, that does make a little more sense. So he maybe we saw it in the intro movie where he maybe produced like a large explosion. Maybe the one where he got himself exceptionally injured, created a little crater in the ground for himself. And that is the Monado wound. So same thing. Still not sure why it's called a wound, although it's kind of a gouge in the gr in the ground. Um, but that, uh, but yeah, that's the Monado wound. So it seems good to know. I'm glad we solved that one. Metal face falls to his death. Mumkar slays himself by uh, betraying Shulk's trust after staying Dunbin's hand. Fires a laser blast at them, which releases some structure from parts of Sword Valley come crashing down, impaling him right through the base Mechon cockpit, and then the whole shebang crashes down into the primordial ocean below. We assume he is dead and gone. Not like this! And that's where we left you off last week. Uh, next scene, we are treated to Larithia and Alvis talking shady with one another. They're playing the pronoun game. They're using a lot of words like they, he, this, and the boy, and things like that. They're talking shady, and we're not allowed to know what they're going on because 
they're using pronouns. I wrote that my girlfriend Lori is looking at a uh, big green staff. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I also put Alvis, please get away from her. We don't like Alvis anymore on this podcast. So um, we're watching another scene of uh, characters discussing their uh, research of various details that our characters that we play as have already learned. So our characters learned that uh, the Mechanus is absorbing green Bionis goo. Um, we figured that out, and now we're watching other characters figure it out as well to <laughs> reinforce uh, the that repetition of themes. Uh, we talk about that a little bit, that this game likes to do that in some cases. Uh, they also say, uh, quote, it's too early to draw conclusions. And I'm saying, no, it, it really isn't because some random children that were just running across the big-ass sword have already drawn those correct conclusions. So go ahead, draw those conclusions, Larithia. I you have my permission it's it's another one of those uh characters feeling unsure about things that they should definitely feel sure about at this point in this game mm -hmm. i i realize that the the scene exists for a different reason maybe maybe the details that we already know are not as interesting as what we're about to get which is a name drop of dixon right yeah dixon we got a name drop of fucking dixon <laughs> Fucking Dixon. Turns out that Lori, my gal Lori, is also an old Dickie fan too. And um, so I'm currently sending my breakup text as we speak. I thought she wasn't a, a Dixon fan. I thought she says, why did you have to include him? You know, he disgusts me. And I thought she's referring to Dixon. Oh, okay. They talked about him, but I thought she had like disdain for him. That's a good point. Dude, the ship may still sail. Nate and Lori. Okay, yeah, may, I'll have to reinvestigate that because I was interpreting that as Zanza. Like, the, the conversation that um, Elvis had with Zanza afterwards and, like, this little mental mind game. But, yeah, okay, including Dixon means he got invited to the Capitol. He got invited on the mission. That makes total sense. So, okay, I'm with you now. She's uh, she's not a fan of Dixon. But I got to give you credit here. It's difficult to say because they're using pronouns. They're saying, so why did you have to include him? You know, he disgusts me. Yeah, because she seemed to, at the beginning of the scene, have a vested interest in the Emperor being saved by the Vision. And she said, oh, well, the Vision is useless because the Emperor wasn't saved. And so I, I was kind of getting that her disdain would be for Zanza and kind of all the BS that went down on top of um, Prison Island. So, but I, I'm going to rewatch that scene after. Maybe we'll do an addendum on the next episode. Who knows? But I'm actually just, as I replay it in my head, I'm leaning on your direction that she's talking about Dixon being the distasteful one to her. I want to pick up on another point in this uh, scene here where where Larithia says this is no where Alvis asks is there a countermeasure to this green ether poison that disintegrates bionic matter and Larithia says something like creating antibodies is a simple matter we will be ready and I have to ask myself Nate bionis antibodies this kind of sounds like wells from Xenogears now um in Xenogears if you recall and, and big spoilers if you're not already familiar with Xenogears, but Wells are demi-humans or mutated humans, and they end up being raw material for a larger godlike being on the, you know, that's critical to the plot here. And I wondered if maybe Lurithia's, 
maybe if maybe antibodies are sort of analogous to some greater thing than the tiny little things we have in our blood that that you know attack foreign matter yeah i can see that being the case it, this brings up a quick little thing for me too in the past i've talked about how um it seems like xeno games kind of revisit the same themes and ideas and recycling things I don't mean that as a negative whatsoever when I point to these old, uh, you know, like, is this like Xenogears? Is this like Xenosaga? I actually, like, when it comes to my own personal content, uh, if I'm playing a new RPG game or something, I kind of take my own original characters and, like, reinterpret them through whatever new game or uh, RPG I'm playing or a new D&D session with somebody. I myself repackage my own content over and over to get maximum satisfaction out of it so i i actually commend them that if if we can get more xeno gears content even though rights wise it probably belongs to squaresoft square enix i'm i'm all for it so i i love it I, so if in the past it sounds like i'm kind of knocking our references to xeno gears as repetitious or uncreative that is definitely not the case in my mind definitely not the case and we have this series to thank for the impetus for producing this podcast at all it's th- it's some um, through inspirational storytelling like xeno gears and maybe to um another extent xeno blade uh that we're even here talking about this so it, it inspires us it inspires us big time yeah another question i have about this scene is how does dixon know alvis and how does dixon know larithia what sort of history do these three people have. Nixon is more than just a guy with a rifle that fought in a battle one year ago. And a guy that discovered Baby Shulk, or enormous Baby Shulk, 14 or was it seven years ago? I don't even remember. Um, yeah. How do these people know each other? How does a Homs, a mysterious ether-sensitive Homs, and a S&M wing-haired lady get to know each other? There is a quote I have here. It's, quote, we must respect our elders. Dixon has known him far longer than us. So, again, that's where adding to my confusion that maybe Zanza was part of the conversational mix was, like you said, the pronoun. Um, so I, I'm calling it, you know, before I said that Dixon was Zanza, that might still be the case by some stretch, but... You know, he's an elder to Alvis and Larithia. Um, so, and we know uh, Hyentia are long lived. So, Dixon is definitely really long lived if he's their elder. So, again, we've got these two like elder beings creating Mechon slaying swords. I- I'm mm-hmm. going with a strong, strong connection between Dixon and Zanza. Sure. Like, sure. like I said before, maybe not as strong a connection of he's the exact same guy as I postulated earlier, but still a very strong connection. Reconnecting with the group, Shulk has a vision where Fiorface is knocked off a hanging platform and falling backwards into the primordial ocean, like as if she's unconscious. Um, he touches his head and like shakes it, like as if it's disturbing him. And of course, Shulk lies about it first. Dunbin sniffs him out, and Shulk only then admits it, but he only says that the vision is telling him that Fiora is certainly inside, which is suspicious because nobody suspects that the half-truth he told was worth lying about. This party is full of dum-dums. Did you see something? No. You did see something. All right. It was the Silver Mechon. Fiora. She's definitely inside the fortress. 
and it seems that Shulk never learned his lesson about the the lying visions. So yeah, whose convenience are you preserving by hiding this truth? Like we're this is like a suicide mission. It's you know we're going <laughs> we're going to Mekanos. It's probably good intel, especially if you are kind of getting you know visions of scenarios of the future to share with your party. And he lies about it. And then when he tells the truth, he says, oh, no, it's just that, you know, yeah, yeah, I had a vision and it's just that Fiora was inside, which I could have admitted, which if we're true is not reason to hide it. But yeah, dum-dums. And I'm going to drop the uh, internet meme word of ludonarrative dissonance. I know, I don't <laughs> like the word either, but it, it's a term that means when gameplay and story don't really line up to give you the same perspective and so when we're playing as shulk and we receive a vision of some random enemy critting and destroying a friend of ours we are prompted to immediately warn them about their death but when it's a story cutscene and the same thing happens for shulk where he <laughs> receives a vision of imminent death of somebody he always holds it back so there's a bit of a disconnect between how we as players are told to treat visions and how our player avatar treats them when we are not in control. We are back in the saddle. We are controlling characters. We are running around a, a giant ass sword. I push my thumbstick. My character moves forward. I'm very happy in this moment. This place is really big. The far end of the zone um, takes a while to get to. There's a lot of like winding circular structures that um, various layers and levels to them that you go up a walkway, you go down a walkway, you go around a curved structure. 100%ing the map in this case takes quite a bit. But um, when you get to the far end of the zone, it delivers your third impromptu quest of secure the radio tower. If you remember from our last episode, we did two of these where you're just running along and you just a quest pops up on your screen like nothing. You just you want to do it and um, securing the radio tower. I wonder, Cypher, is that you? Are you are you the one that wants to go secure the radio tower? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't want my seed rank to go down. And also there's a level 55 elite as an objective in this one. And I'm scared that he's going to kick my ass. So I don't do it. Mm, mm -hmm. I did that one. Did you? You did that one. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I was saving it for later, but I will say that eventually I did figure out a way to do it. Are you familiar with um, Vanilla WoW's Upper Black Rock Spire? Yes, although I ran very little of that. So the prevailing strategy when I played at the very beginning of the game, when it was still a 15-man dungeon, I believe, was that a hunter would pull the boss and kite him around damn near the entire dungeon while you killed all the other shit like standing next to the boss. And then he'd come back and hopefully your party was in enough of a together state that you could finish him off before everybody was just murdered. Which boss is that? Uh, oh god. Final one? Let me... Yeah, the final one. Okay. Let's see. Yeah, he's like a dragon. Uh, dragon kind? General Dracosat. General Dracosat. The, the hunter would kite him across the entire dungeon, and we would kill his adds, finally like setting the stage to kill him ourselves. So what does this have to do with the third quest? Well, I found a way to uh, take a party of all ranged characters and just run Sharla in a circle to where the uh, elite 
protecting this area could never actually hit me. And then mm. I would order my side characters to focus the additional enemies around him, right? Mm -hmm. And then once all the enemies were killed, I could just run back and he'd reset, but there'd be no enemies there. But he was still a level 55 elite and killing the shit out of me. So I still did the Charlo running around in circle strategy and he could pretty much never hit me. So I officially cheesed a fight in the game to, um, it's what we call clever use of mechanics, but really it's cheating. Nicely done, Nate. I think we talked about this last episode, but it makes me wonder how casual players digested this zone because a lot of this stuff is pretty hard or at least very challenging. I don't, I don't know if I'd use the word hard, but just like um, you have to have appropriate levels and gear and preparation to tackle some of these uh, encounters. Yeah, certainly harder than Valak Mountain and Earthsea. We enter Galahad Fortress from the rear entrance, which I think is LOL. Yeah, that's, there's like a big uh, opening that everybody... We even get a cutscene where it's just like, oh, hey, that's how we get in, guys. And that's when we get into Galahad Fortress. That's its own zone. It's not a subsection of Sword Valley. It is its own zone. And when we arrive, uh, we get the Makanis map. Usually when we arrive at a new zone here, we get the Bionis map, and it kind of puts a sparkle on where on the Titan we are. But this time we're on the Makanis map, who has his own silhouette. Um, Makanis in the Makanis map looks vaguely samurai-like, with the silhouette of the Titan kind of holding a bent knee position, swinging its sword perfectly level to the horizon, and Galahad Fortress is on the hand or the wrist of the sword arm. Yeah, and I'd be interested to look later at some of the designs of both Bionis, Mechanis, some of the based Mechon designs and everything, because I noticed an interesting fact about Mumkar's based Mechon. I don't even know what... Frame. Mumkar's frame. Let's call it that. Uh, metal face. Is that Mumkar was obsessed with the Monado, and his um, metal face's design has all of these Monado-like shapes, like in the shape of the legs and mm. the shoulders and, mm -hmm. and things. There's, You know how the Monado has obviously the straight edge of the blade and then this curved area in which the symbol appears? That same shape is very prevalent in his design. So after we're kind of done with this game, I might do like a deep dive on the art direction and forms of all the different mechs in the game to see what they're they're trying to convey and what they're referencing and everything because it's really interesting to me and like you said um, I kind of lean to Makanis looking a bit cooler to me than Bionis when I look at the overall big picture I think I agree with you Yeah. Um, now might be a good time to talk about Metal Face's authentic Japanese translation name um, because for American listeners, it's kind of astonishing. Uh, the true original name of Metalface is Blackface. And Blackface, or the, the phrase and the principle of Blackface is very touchy and sensitive in American culture. And what Blackface is, is white folks putting like shoe polish or black paint over their face as a means to impersonate a black person, like someone from uh, a, an African-American descent. And that's, that qualifies as very racist in the United States of America. And so when they translated blackface to the, you know, the Mekon blackface to 
the American audience or the Western release, maybe I'll put it that way, um, they changed it to Metal Face. And so when when you and I scoffed at the name, or at least I did, uh, Chapter Two for, during the uh, the attack on Colony Nine. Reason that I found recently about why his name is Metal Face. It's because it was originally something that you just couldn't put in a game, at least in the United States. Definitely, and uh, there's a little bit more we could say about that. In English, we're using the term face, uh, small f, and face, capital F, interchangeably in sentences. So when a Homs is referring to a Mechon having a face, they are using the word cow, uh, or not, not C-O-W, K-A-O, um, in Japanese, and um, that is a term for a literal face. But Metal Face's name in Japanese, the black face, is Kuroi Feisu, which is a, they're, they're trying to say the word face in their Japanese characters. So Feisu is face. So for them, the, the capital F face is an abstraction. It is um, a term, they, they might know what it means or they might have some connection, but it doesn't carry the same like literal definition for them because they're using an English word to express something. Yeah, so to, to elaborate on this, we have there our scene from very early in the game where uh, our Captain Waluigi from uh, Colony 9, he encounters Metal Face for the first time and he says, There's a few different ways to translate that, but I, I read that to my wife who speaks Japanese and she essentially says that it, it means something akin to he has a face in a way that's shocking, right? And so they, they translated this correctly when they translated it to a mechon with a face because, you know, it, it's expressing that surprise to it. But he's not saying face you. He's saying kauga. So he's saying a actual face. He's seeing eyes, a nose, a mouth, right? Now, when characters in the game refer, use the term face you, that's when we're getting our capital F faces in English. I think that if I were the translator, people go back and forth on this. They want literal straight translations to keep, you know, as close as they can to the spirit of it. But they already had to make a um, compromise in not naming him blackface. I think it would have been better to like the Japanese people have an extra an abstraction of the term feisu, a term they don't necessarily understand in their native language, we should have gotten a term that we don't understand. I think I know what you mean. Like, let's say, like in Pacific Rim, you had Jaegers. Now, Jaeger, I think that means shark. I think it's German for hunter. Hunter? Okay, sure. But yeah, it could be, it could be Black Hunter, right? That would be acceptable. Yeah, I think I said Black Mask instead. Oh, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. They don't really have faces either. We're not seeing Mumcar's head displayed in uh, giant head mode, cheat code up on the top of the Mechon. We're just seeing like a... And they're not expressive. They're not expressive faces. Yeah, so I think you could have kept the black and changed the abstracted term. Mask is not abstract, you know, but with that capital M, you would run into that a lot less than you would the... 
interchangeability of people talking about faces and face you and all. I don't know. We've talked about this a bit, but we have essentially solved the mystery of these awkward sentences where we talked about like Egil last chapter or no, we talked about in the last episode, Egil saying the faces are no longer of use to me. It appears the usefulness of the faces has come to an end. That sentence is just for the initiated only, you know, you, you couldn't you couldn't casually walk in on that sentence inside Galahad Fortress. It's very Star Warsy, sterile, clean, futuristic Death Star style hallways and Metroid style colored doors, which open up into circular galleries with holographic computer displays and racks of dormant mechons. So glad you mentioned Star Wars, Tyler, because I just encountered a, a revelation that I had okay. um, that came that came with this game, but also something I've felt for years and years. Um, so when you when you watch Star Wars and you see a Star Destroyer come up or the Death Star itself, you notice they they did a really good job of showing like when you zoom in on a Star Destroyer along like the edge, there's all all of these like little rooms and protrusions jutting out to where like it, yeah each of these are like a special utility area or you know something is done and this place is just so massive that they have a you know incredible amount of staff all working on various uh, purposes right and I, I would say to myself when looking like at the exterior and interior of the Death Star, I, I had this thought in my head. It's like you would never need that many utility panels and pipes and electrical displays and lights, you know, doing all of these different things. You'd never need that much shit. It, it, we're talking about a, you know, a highly digitized uniform um, system here. You'd never need all that garbage on there. And I felt the same way when I was looking at kind of the interior of Sword Valley. It's like, this is just a big sword that pumps juice away from something. Why do we need all these bases and fortresses and all these different things on there? Mm -hmm. So I had a revelation. I, um, I had a little uh, tour I went on. I rode on the CVN 78 USS Gerald R. Ford. The um, first in the Ford class carrier and the biggest and baddest hmm. ship in the U.S. Navy, according to them. Um, we, we rode down to Florida and back up. I watched um, some jets take off and land on the thing. Um, it, was, it was a sight to behold. I got to see all the inner workings of the ship. Got to take some classes on how uh, nuclear power works and how all of those reactors are maintained and uh, operated by the uh, Navy members on board and um, what I will say is that every single inch of that entire fucking thing <laughs> is covered in pipes and panels and electrical equipment shoved into every corner to where there is a constant hum of electricity and uh, water and all of this stuff it is like I, I don't know how my wife does it how she survives because it would drive me insane and it give me this it gave me this epiphany moment of like Star Wars actually got it right and the inside of the Mechon Sword got it right. Like to run a facility of this size and this complexity, there really is all of these panels and equipment and electrical details on every inch of it. There are pipes everywhere. Like there is not a single space that is not utilized on this thing. So I stand corrected in that regard. Um, so your description of that kind of Star Wars-like moment uh, 
tied into exactly something I just realized. Everywhere you turn, there's a console. You don't know what it's for, but there's all kinds of buttons and, le and levers and uh, who knows what. They're everywhere. Yeah, and apparently somebody does know how to operate these things. That blows my mind. Um, uh, I'll quick mention that watching the um, the jets uh, take off from the carrier deck, um, they are using a um, electromagnetic launcher to propel the jet off the system. In 1979, the show Mobile Suit Gundam had the white base that would use magnetic launchers to fire the Gundams off of the ship. <laughs> the same goes for firing missiles in the Metal Gear Solid series. They uh, use a mag electromagnetic rail to fire missiles at a distance that um, rockets previously couldn't because they were able to attain a low orbit. So we're finally seeing some of the uh, some of the um, sci-fi tech being used in real life of 40 years ago. President Donald Trump was famous for, in 2017, wanting the Ford to use, quote, goddamn steam catapults instead of the, quote, no good electromagnetic catapults. Thankfully, the U.S. Navy denied that request because I don't want to live in a steampunk future. I want to live in a Gundam future. Nate, I started watching Gundam 1 the other day. How was it? It's, it's tough, isn't it? I've got no it's fun it's good I, I it drops you into the action right away which was pretty cool which is also very Star Warsy like for the original New Hope sure. um uh, I'm only 40 minutes into into Gundam one but it's it's good it's good I think it's fun I like it I had to stop because I had other things going on but I'll finish it Sure. I'm so proud of you. I appreciate that you have the ability to judge content a little bit more mm, I don't know uh, with with a fair eye for the time period it came out and everything because it's really hard to get people to just be like sit down and watch gundam one and not be like what the hell am i watching um so it, it's it's an acquired taste but it is something that when you get the whole picture of what the story it's trying to tell and where it's trying to go i think it's uh, pretty magical entering galahad fortress we have new normal battle music It really, really rocks. I don't know if we're going to be listening to different battle, typical normal battle music uh, based on which Titan we're on. It sounds like a souped up jam from Mega Man X. It is heavy. I think it's great. I think it's a, it's a freaking great jam. It's kind of got like a mix of breakbeat and a heavy guitar in there. Very, very 2000s or late 90s, at least in my opinion. Um, it, sure. it it brought me back to the soundtrack for the first Mortal Kombat movie, maybe a little bit of the second terrible movie's soundtrack as well. For how for how successful or unsuccessful those movies were, their soundtracks were amazing. Um, and uh, there's a particular song in there by I think it's Gravity Kills that um, this track just reminds me of that. Um, like post Nine Inch Nails energy a little bit. I'm not. I'm mm, not saying. Okay. I'm not saying the track from the game makes me think of Nine Inch Nails, but just more so how everybody was uh, kind of incorporating industrial a little bit, even if they're yes. even if they're a little bit more of a fast paced um, rock band. They were incorporating mm -hmm. some of those sounds that they picked up from that uh, explosion of industrial onto the scene, and I'm hearing a little bit of that here. Um, Sounds like what the Mechon listen while they're chugging the uh, Mechon Dew Bionis Blast. I made that joke <laughs> last episode, but our 
great contributor on our Discord, Ronan. Um, he added the Mechondu instead of Mountain Dew Bionis Blast. He says Mechondu Bionis Blast, and I chuckled out loud and I said, "All right, yeah, he he beat me to it. He that's a better joke than what I came up with." So. Hilarious. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and also, there was at one point in the music where uh, hilariously Riki adds his uh, ba 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 uh, on beat with the music. So um, I guess I'm playing with Riki now for this duration of this for some uh, laughable moments. Good laughs, though. I don't think I had an awareness of that. No, I don't think he does it on purpose. I think it just lined up. He he has like a he has like an audio clip where it's like ba ba ba. It, oh it, yeah, yeah. It yeah. almost sounds like something my kid says. Um, now he he likes uh, whenever I drop him off at daycare, he'll I'll be like, uh, hey Teddy, can you shut the door? <laughs> and he'll he'll uh, he'll go and he'll get so excited to shut the door, and while he's shutting, he'll go ba ba. And uh, for bye bye, but in his own little version of it. So, uh, Ricky kind of reminded me of uh, my kid when he did that. There's an elevator. We don't have a key. We look for the elevator key by activating basically every dormant Macon we can find and then arrive at the control room. The control room controls the blast furnace. So, Galahad Fortress isn't exactly a fortress, it's a refinery. We conspire to sabotage this blast furnace's energy turbines by shutting off these two giant pistons which are floating above a room of green ether ooze which is accessible by walking atop giant industrial sized pipes just like you do in Midgar's Mako reactors. Play the Midgar Mako reactor music. Yeah, so we're shutting down the pistons and um, as I previously just talked about, my wife is a nuclear engineer. Whenever she tells me about her job and how all this machinery works, my eyes gloss over and roll back into my head to spite my best efforts to uh, understand and pay attention and empathize with everything she does. Um, it's curious to me that this uh, band of country bumpkins is all in sync on the workings of foreign tech that they've never interacted with before and how this whole thing works but um i will give shulk credit for being an engineer in this instance he does uh work on machinery so uh, he he's getting a pass on this one for me but it's it's a mild benefit of the doubt it's not a full like i still have to question it a little bit a and the other thing is um the the this whole operation seems to not be built with fail-safes in mind because as I learned about the operation of the uh, board class carrier, I found out that they they go down to the point where they also have giant train diesel engines on board just in case like the nine other layers of power fail on the thing. They can fire up a diesel train engine to get the boat moving. <laughs> so uh, the Makana the, the sword is not well designed in that when you shut down two pistons uh, that essentially uh, cripples their offensive efforts for the rest of uh, seemingly this entire chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no redundant systems. Shame on you, Eagle. Shame on you. Your questions do not concern me. We turn off the pistons and the ether production stops. A door unlocks and grants us access to the blast furnace. Shulk hazards that Fiora will be at the blast furnace, but gives no explanation why he thinks she will be at the blast furnace. I have that exact same note of why does why is uh, Fiora at a blast furnace? Did was it his vision? Did he see the the furnace in 
the vision. Is this where we end up at the end of the chapter? I don't 100% think so, but I could be wrong then. It just sounds like a place where you keep a WoW raid boss. Speaking of WoW raid bosses, we get to the Ether input stream and glorious Jerome is awaiting us. He's just idling in a corner, kind of like a WoW raid boss <laughs> might. And when I kill him, he drops for me a quality plunger at long last, Nate. I have in my inventory a quality plunger. No second rate plungers, no dime store plungers, a quality plunger. Thank you, glorious Jerome. May glory be to you and my toilet maintenance back on Colony 9 forevermore. Have we seen a toilet yet? I don't know. No. <laughs> well, a plunger could be like, what else could a plunger be? Like a, like a <laughs> syringe? Mm, yeah. I suppose okay, okay. that makes sense. A plunger could be just the rubber part that might go like like function kind of like a gasket in a some sort of hydraulic system. Sure. And if we consider the fact that everybody in this game has accents, it could definitely mean something very different than what we use the word plunger for. I also found a room with um you talked about glorious Jerome. Uh, we also have Glacier Acon. No, not that Akon, Tyler. And um, it, it, I'm finding that tackling elites with the team of Sharla, Riki, and Melia is uh, its a bit much. So I, I'm going to have to change up that team. We descend an elevator to the faced maintenance bay where a bunch of Zord faces are hanging out in place, each holding a glowing green spear. Now, this sounds like a place you might find Fiora face. The faced maintenance bay. Yeah, and it's it's kind of highlighting the fact that, like, uh, you know, we've got one of these spears back that we're researching uh, back in Alchemoth. We've got one of them, and there are apparently hundreds of them ready to stab all sorts of biological beings. So it's it's subtle, but it's kind of raising the stakes on that experience we had. You know, it's... It, it's highlighting that these are not like that spear that we have is not like some legendary weapon that they had to sacrifice in order to achieve their ends. They've got tons of these things. So an alarm sounds and mechons flood the room led by Fiora face. She draws two swords and engages us without saying a word. My heart tells me to clear out all mechons, not childhood friends first. Yes. I think from a story perspective and a good ad management perspective in our MMO brains, this is the conclusion we both arrived at was to not attack her right away. These are the Mechons, like all the other Mechons in this zone and in, and in Sword Valley have very utilitarian names like the M94 Guard Unit. Um, but the but I want to point out the M94 Guard Unit particularly because it is a giant four-legged spider bot with a single glowing eye, kind of like Goma's from The Legend of Zelda. Yeah, they seem to be designed to not necessarily do battle with Homs or other biological units, but just kind of scale large areas in a short amount of time, maybe even high terrain with their giant legs. So Dunbin and Shulk chastise Fiora Face for not recognizing them, and then we retreat when we find that it's no use. Fiora jets ahead of us and then demolishes the bridge we're running on with a laser blast. We all fall deeper into Galahad Fortress. We, the whole place kind of 
crumbles and we're descending down down into the bowels of Galahad Fortress. It's a huge, huge room that we land on. Everyone is okay, of course. Um, looking up, we see the walkway above and it get big Empire Strikes Back vibes from like when Luke and Vader are fighting one another in the bowels of Cloud City. It feels like that. We're, we're kind of um, in the maintenance shafts, um, the unimportant areas of this place where all plot points are coming together. And that's where we are now. And who shows up but Goldface? Or is it Golden Face? Goldface? Eggo Face. Ego. Ego Face. Ego. Lego my ego. Um, yeah, he's here and um, the... I don't know, my, my notes are getting a little sparse. Maybe I was losing steam at this point. But um, he says, uh, Apocrypha activate. And um, the Monado's power is completely negated in this area. So it's almost like we were kind of drawn to this position he was using fiora and the subsequent destruction and relocation to pull us into this place golden face floats into the air pulls his arms and his knees inwards and then extends them out again we zoom out to see a blue cloud of energy rise out of mcconus itself and then it paints the room we're in and our heroes in a blue light the monado shuts off and Fiora Face, well, she arrives now. She's there too now. And uh, Dunbin shows us that our weapons are useless. Or Dunbin does? Um, again, Dunbin shames Fiora Face for not recognizing Shulk came here to save us. Stop! Don't you recognize Shulk? Fiora, please! Don't you remember us at all? It's no use! I feel like in this moment that the, that the team is oblivious to the nuances of this kind of mind control and think that basic stuff like shaming and yelling at Fiora will snap her out of this instead of, I don't know, destroying the correct MacGuffin like you would in any other fantasy adventure. I have the same uh, note here. I'd say I'm getting a little burnt out on the repetition of this where we have people yelling at Nemesis Face slash Maineth because that we can learn at this point. Even... Even not as players, I would feel like the uh, characters would be able to learn that this is not Fiora and that just yelling at her is not going to do the trick. Um, she's fighting to regain control. We can tell that a little bit as players, but like the scenes drag on for a little bit uh, on these points. And um, I just feel like, the, you know, there's building to like a beat change and then there's beating me over the head with it. Um, Two different things, you know. You can you can build and then you can drag it out for way too long. Um, I'd like for them to find a different way to communicate this struggle, at least than a pack of people yelling at a Gundam. <laughs> it's not as compelling as maybe the writers thought it was. But it turns out it works because eventually Fiora face trembles and she shakes her head and she says, "You must run." The cockpit opens and then we see Fiora herself again. Her palms form again in the cockpit and she says, with her palms mouth, "The machine is not under my control." And then the cockpit closes. This offends Golden Face. He says he didn't expect such resistance to becoming a face. All mech on our mind to control. And should a passenger define me, I force it to obey. Shulk then asks Egil, why attack Bionis? And Golden Face says, well, submit yourself to me and find out. It will be clear to you why I attack Bionis with a when you have a Mechonis body. So if you say the Monado is powerless and you want the Monado, well... Well, how does that make sense? If you really want this thing, come and get it. And the fight breaks out. We fight 
Golden Face. This guy, he kind of drums himself up to be like a final boss, uh, but we're gonna fight him now. And and here we go, he's huge. He's way, way bigger than, than Metal Face, way bigger than Fiora Face, Zord Face. Um, he's, he's a large, large, golden-faced Mechon. Tyler, we're getting another spat of exposition on how the Monado works. Bro, I, I want characters to stop teeing up expedition jumps and just say, dude, we get it. Like, Agil starts talking and Shulk's like, no, I got it. Monado, Ether, Fate, whatever, I don't care. So, um, just, or like Dunbin, just interrupt Agil and say, I can enjoy bread without knowing how to bake it. Fuck off. You can eat bread without knowing how to bake it. Let's enjoy that bread, not learn how to bake the bread. Uh, so my baby was making little sounds and so I paused to take care of her now. She's in my arms and we're going to finish the rest of the episode here. I think we've only got a couple scenes left and if she makes some sounds into the microphone, then you know what? So be it. Baby's first podcast. Let's go. So we don't just fight Goldface. We also are fighting Fiora Face, which isn't her name. It's Nemesis Face, but Fiora Face is funny. And so we can damage Fiora, but not Egil. Goldface has a skill called Kingbreaker, and it hurts really, really hard. Egil resists all damage, and so we can only deal damage to Nemesis Face. And when we get her to about 50% health, the battle ends. Goldar is going in for the kill. Since you refuse to listen to reason, I guess I had no choice but to destroy you. <laughs> um, but Fiora... Goldar... Yeah, there's a lot of connection between us and Power Rangers in this podcast. Fiora is beseeching Maneth from within. So there, there's a little bit of a dichotomy there of Fiora still exists inside that head. And she's sharing it with somebody else, right? Whoever you are, please lend me your strength, she says. Yeah, and she wants her to save Shulk. So I guess, the, you know, that is confirmation of what we were talking about with the soul transfer. It, this is something that is possibly unique to only this character and not just like a Mechon Hom thing that all of the faces, frames, people inside are using because uh, we can reasonably deduce that Mumkar didn't have a soul transfer of any kind because he wasn't having these like crises of identity. It was just straight up Mumkar, as we stated before. So um, Lady Maneth is a separate entity from Fiora and that we can now deduce that that soul was placed in her body for whatever purpose. Yeah, we don't know that purpose yet. We have a Faisu fight. Yes, she spear tackles Agil, who combos her shit with melee blows and just pummels her, just crumples her up. Nemesis eventually releases a red energy from Fiora's chest crest thing that we saw in previous chapters. Um, the Monado power is back with this red energy. So um, she says, please survive. And Shulk gets a vision of the whole damn place collapsing. And then it does. Yes. How does it, why, why does it start to break down? Oh no, it's, it's the, the red energy that she radiates is causing Galahad Fortress to begin exploding. The platform we're on starts listing to one side and destroyed Mechon husks are slipping off and falling down to the ocean below. Shulk is walking precariously towards Fiora's frame, which then slips off and falls down and Shulk goes leaping after her. Fiora! 
I think he needs to uh, pump those ether waves and just change reality. That's that's what he should be doing right now. Because the Monado's back, baby. Right, yeah. Agul cannot believe what he's seeing here. He says, It is impossible that a faced Mechon can do what she did to re-energize the Monado. We're left with a cliffhanger. That's how that... We still have one more scene here, but that's how, like, the action ends. Shulk leaping to his death, let's, let's say, chasing after the nemesis face frame with his childhood friend Fiora inside, and everybody else, Dunbin, Ricky, Melia, Sharla, Ryan, watching in astonishment, also clinging to their own lives, and presumably we're all just going to crash into the, into the ocean below as well. Yeah, a lot of people falling into the ocean in this chapter, it makes, makes me wonder... Tyler, are we going to get a nice little uh, cameo from a a broken apart, nearly dead mom car hanging out in the ocean? Maybe, maybe he's uh, floating on a piece of driftwood like Rose from Titanic. <laughs> maybe, could be. I don't really know. We can't be done with the mom car just yet. I'm kidding. We totally could be. I I would love for us to be done with mom car, but we'll see. We'll see. Place your bets now. He needs to be crucified for his sins. Not enough crucifixions yet in this game. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Not enough crucifixions. Not enough biblical iconography. Not enough uh, jaw-dropping moments that you wouldn't want your mom to see when she comes into the room. The final scene is back in Alchemoth, where Kallion is speaking with an anonymous guard who is reporting on the explosions uh, from Galahad Fortress. Dixon's present, it looks like, and he says, you don't need to worry about them. I got a pretty good idea where they are, but now is a good time to launch that attack that we've been arranging this whole time. Turns out Alvis is here as well, and he asks, should I perform the divination ritual now and Kellyan says no we don't need to see the future here Alvis has no reaction to this and Kellyan's idea here is that it doesn't matter uh, what the future says maybe we don't need it here it kind of feels like a breath of fresh air to decline visions let's use our intel let's use our boots on the ground observational awareness to inform our battle plans rather than the divinations of a sketchy 17 year old exactly i I like that you said sketchy because i previously have postulated you know are these visions genuine warnings of don't let this happen don't let that happen or are they manipulations pushing us in the direction that someone wants us to go as we know uh the visions kind of all led to prison island all led to that moment of zanza being freed so are they just hey that's just how the visions lined up man it is what it is or is somebody giving those visions to push people in a certain direction so i think kalyan is doing some boss king shit here by saying no i'm i see you two manipulators fist bumping in the corner over there i don't i don't want anything to do with this so um he just says we're gonna we're gonna take fate and destiny into our own hands and say fuck it. Dixon is he seems revved and raring to go. Um, I I often forget from his like old man hippie look that the actual first time we met him he was uh, ripping Mech on ass. So I guess it makes sense that he's getting back into that mode of Mech on slaying again. Um, but uh, he he has a quote here that it says I quote. I like that look in your eye there, lad. It's time. This is war. Unquote. The headband will rise again. Where are we going next, Nate? Uh, we fell into the ocean, so hopefully there's some 
stuff down there, like some um, like islands or ships or cra- like broken, crashed things. I have no idea. So um, Shulk fell into the ocean. Did the the rest of the party didn't though, right? If they're not there, they're clinging to some piece of scrap metal that's hanging them over the ocean sure. and there's n- nobody nearby that'll pick them up unless some uh earth sea freighter or not freighter but like you know fighter shows up if it's shulk and a fiora or fiora like person hanging out below on debris of some kind maybe maybe the mechon itself that fiora fell down onto or maybe there's other shit down there are we gonna get our uh fey and ellie uh fishing scene where Faye's running around being a dumbass <laughs> and ellie's wondering you know are we gonna survive this could be that, that's a pretty iconic scene and i wonder if it's gonna be replayed here with uh, the ocean oceanic survival mm-hmm. Um, side quest. There's a lot of those in Japanese RPGs, don't you think? Um, I'm thinking of Illusion of Gaia. Did you play that one? I was thinking that too. Yes. Yes. The the raft. You strike the fish with your flute, and then they pop onto your raft. Yes. As well. That that boat sequence where you meet the king and all that. That was that was very powerful to my young self. I haven't replayed the game in decades so i don't know if it holds up in the same way but i remember just being moved to where you wake up and everyone's fucking dead maybe we'll do that one sometime together here that'd be a fun quick one yeah make it real quick four or six episodes yeah for basically uh is it the the flute notes is that what you're collecting you collect no they're statues oh right 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 inexplicable statues that i forget how you apply them but you're looking for your father, never returned from his expedition to the Tower of Babel. Mm-hmm. Babel, I think. Uh, we were on a rabbit trail here, but um, that was a pretty magical game. That was one of my occasions I remember actually sitting down and playing a game for like over six hours straight on my first encounter with it. I was just completely enraptured by it. This has been an episode of Hero with a Thousand Potions recorded on July 7th, 2022. Unless you are in Nate's time zone and then it is July 8th, 2022. We have an email, hero with a thousand potions at gmail.com. That's 1000 potions. We're also on Discord, and you can find a link to that Discord in our podcast description wherever you find our our podcast uh, episodes here join us on discord um we're having all kinds of conversations uh shout outs to some of our new uh members here koshek7958 super slav 74 and xx princess unicorn xx who also moonlights as the game over kid in my earthbound beginnings episode join us next time where we will find out what the heck happened to all of these to all of these characters and whether that they all drowned or if through our face floats and and things like that here that'll do it here um we bid you all good day we bid you all farewell all right now bye bye wow They're playing the pronoun gling. They're playing. If um, video game podcasts had like a bingo board, Ludonarrative Dissidence or uh, Diegetic.
would be the fucking free space. I actually, I really love diegetic because that's literally the only word you can use in that scenario where you're trying to say like, the thing actually exists. And it's like, oh God, thank you. They made a word for this. Equality plunger. We can damage Fiora, but not Ego. That sound right to you? I'm reading through my notes right now to see how that works. I just have dual fight, not winnable. We did like 25% of Egil's health and damage, and then the battle was over. But my other note says we can only damage Fiora and not Egil. So how did it freaking go? I hear squeaks. That's her nickname. We call her squeaks. She makes little squeaky sounds. We also call her frog legs because she's really long and skinny. Theodore was huge. When he came out, the nurses were like, wow, you were all baby. Like, <laughs> Brianna, Brianna's not a, like, big person. She's very tall and, like, long limbs, short torso. And so for her to have that giant baby bump and then him to come out as big as he did, they were like, wow, oh, my God. He was huge. My a previous partner of mine made me go watch one of the Twilight movies with them. And, um... The whole movie, they were talking about how there was this war between werewolves and vampires coming. And at the end of the movie, like just eight vampires walk out of a river and immediately get bodied by the wolves. And I'm like, that is your definition of war? What the fuck? Like, no, stop. Yammer, yammer, yammer. Keep on chatting. Illusion of Guy was the first game I ever cried to. Like, n not like, like filled me with um, an emotional connection to the game in which I, I felt, you know, I, I, I cried. I cried just like this baby here. Mwah.